Good morning. My name is Steve Welsh, one of the elders uh, serving here at Redeemer, and I uh, want to thank Ross for filling in for me this morning. Uh, Angie and I live about 45 miles north of here, up near the Virginia border, and uh, as you probably saw on the news, uh, those border counties got hit pretty hard. So we had about a third of ice and uh, no power and stuff like that. So. Uh, it wasn't really good to get down here early this morning, so Ross, thank you. <laughs> uh, this morning I have the privilege of reading the Word of God on which Dan is going to preach. It's found in uh, uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn there, or watch on the screen behind me, uh, please stand with me out of honor of the Word of God as I read this morning. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, thus the bringing of God's word, you may be seated. Good morning, it's great to be with you. If you would open up to Philippians chapter 2. Let me ask you a question. If, we were, if you were to graph your joy and contentment over the past 12 months or 18 months, what would it look like? Would it be kind of just a, a great incline in your joy and contentment? Or would it reflect a little bit more maybe like my uh, joy and contentment that's been a bit of a roller coaster? turns, loops, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Um, it's no fault of the Lord's, that's my own struggles with sin and the flesh and the devil. Um, but I, I ask that question because this book is a book about learning the secret of joy and contentment. Hopefully it's an encouragement to you that the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, said that he had to learn the secret of being joyful and content. And if the Apostle Paul needs to learn that, then that's a great thing for us as a body of believers, as the church, to learn together. In some ways, I feel like I've learned it, forgotten it, relearned it, forgotten it, and continue to have to apply it to my life. So if you would, let's pray that God would help us this morning to not only learn, but to live the secret of unshakable joy. Father, thank you for your word that you don't leave us to ourselves that you are so patient and kind and long-suffering with us, 
but that you are at work, making us more and more like your Son, Jesus. Help us, even as we consider this beautiful and rich passage about your Son, Jesus, and how it should change how we live. So, Lord, we ask, take your word, push it down into our heart until it catches flame and catches on fire, that we might shine as radiant lights in the universe. For your glory, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. So the passage we're going to look at this morning, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, is one of the most beautiful and rich passages about Jesus. It's one of the most Christological, Christ-centered, theologically dense passages in all of Scripture. We're not going to have time to mine some of the depths and the intricacies of it, which is okay because the way Paul is using it, set in its context, has a very specific purpose. But to do that, I I want us to to step back and think for a moment about what is the setting. How is Paul taking what might have been an early Christian hymn or an early confession of faith, and how is he using it in the life of the church, in the lives of believers? Now, remember the setting. Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. And he is in chains because he's been preaching the gospel. And here he is in prison in a terrible setting saying to the church, as he models it, rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Be content and satisfied in Jesus. So he's not just writing this from an ivory tower. He's not just some preacher telling you what to do but not doing it himself. He himself is an example of finding joy. In fact, the church has loved Paul well. They sent a man named Epaphroditus, to bring a gift to care for Paul's physical as well as his relational needs. And Paul wants to let the church know how thankful he is for that. But Epaphroditus has also said, hey, Paul, there's some struggles in our church, and you ought to speak to them as you write back giving thanks for what you've done. And so Paul is concerned because there's external opposition to the church. People in Philippi, these Romans, are opposed to Jesus being considered the Lord above Caesar. And so they're pressing against the church, pushing against the deity and the lordship of Jesus. And in the midst of that, there is internal tension and division that is beginning to tear the church apart. And so Paul gives this command in verse 27 where he says, I want you to live as citizens of heaven a life that is worthy or reflects the beauty of the gospel. And part of the way you do that, he says there in verse 27, is that you would stand firm. Now that image we talked about last week, if you were with us, is a military image. It's soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder with shields in front of them, fighting the opposition with an unbreakable wall. He says, church, I want you to stand united. And listen to how he says it. Of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then, he uses similar language in chapter 2, the first couple of verses, where he says, now, that's how you fight opposition, and you know how you fight tension and strife and division? Through humility. Listen to what he says in verse three, 2, 3, and 4. He says, I want you to have the same mind. I want you to have the same love. I want you to be in full accord and of one mind. Do you hear that repetition? I want one mind, 
one mind, one mind, one life. Love because you are united to Jesus. So that's the setting. External opposition, internal division. And if that's true, if that's what Paul is exhorting them to, what would be the opposites? Instead of unity, standing firm, shoulder to shoulder, it would be division, it would be infighting, it would be uh, pride and selfishness and division. And so Paul's antidote to these things are to have the mind of Christ. In fact, verse 5 is the hinge verse between 127 through 2.4 and verses 6 through 11. And the command in that hinge verse in verse 5 is this. Think. He's commanding you to think like Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus. Adopt the mind of Jesus. In your community together, think like Jesus because you are united to Jesus. So I want you to hear what Paul's saying. Because you have faith in Jesus, and as he said in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, you have encouragement from being united to Jesus. You've experienced the love of Jesus. You've experienced the sympathy and affection of Jesus, the blessings of the gospel. You can have the mind of Christ. So therefore, because you're united to Jesus, think like Jesus. That's what I want you to walk away this morning, hearing the command of God that we, that you, are called to think like Jesus. What does that even look like? Well, I heard a good illustration partly of what this standing firm together is that I, I want to bring to your attention. Besides shields, I love the redwoods, the sequoia redwoods. I haven't been there yet. That's one of the places I want to go. And there's one I heard that's called General Sherman that's almost like two, 300 feet tall and 25 feet in diameter and a couple thousand years old. How do trees that are so huge weighing hundreds of tons, stand up in the midst of earthquakes and wind and storm. How do they stand? Well, it's surprising that they have really shallow roots. They only go six to ten feet into the ground. They don't have an anchor stem that holds them up. You know what holds them up? Each other. As they they began growth together, their roots became intertwined. And so they would share nutrients and share each other's strength against external adversaries. Friends, we are called to stand firm, united together, and reflect the beauty and the glory of God and His goodness. So how do we do that? How do we have this unity, which, as one person said, you're probably, I'm in threat of losing you right now, because you're tired of hearing politicians and pastors say we need to be unified. Because you're like, oh, the unity doesn't work. Tired of unity. Because it just won't happen. We want it deep down, I think. But these are God's very own words. He says, church, think like Jesus. You need to be one. And the way you do that, the way you think like Jesus, is to think with humility. Verses 6 through 11 are this beautiful song, confession, prose of the cosmic redemption that is ours in Jesus. It it speaks of Jesus being seated in glory with God, taking the form of God, having the form of God, meaning essentially he's in nature, God himself, 
taking the form and nature of man. Therefore, he is the God-man, truly God, truly man, and he comes down and lives in perfect obedience, not claiming his rights, not saying, I don't want to go down there. They aren't worth it. I don't want to lower myself. He came from his own heart and his desire to rescue, to serve, to put others before himself to the point of death on a cross. This first section, 6-8, through eight, is about the humiliation of Jesus who comes from glory and comes to death. See, how is it that people who have such divided minds, difference of opinions, how can they become one and united? It can only happen when we put on and think the mind of Christ who said, I will put others' needs before my own. In fact, I will die a shameful, horrific death, taking the curse of God that I might rescue and save my people. That's humility. That's not pride. Pride says, I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to change. I'm right. You're wrong. You're not worth it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about pride. If anyone, or about humility, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I think I can tell them the first step. First step is to realize that one is proud. And that is a biggish step, too, he says. At least nothing can be done before it. And here's the thing, if you think you are not conceited, (laughs) it means you are very conceited indeed. That's harsh, isn't it? We're so tempted, and it's by our sinful nature to be prone to live with a world that is around us and what we think and our rights and our privileges and our opinions. And it is wholly unnatural to our fallen self to say, but what is the mind of Christ? What will do the best good for those who are around me? How can I serve them rather than be right? and win the argument, win the day, have my influence. Even Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 18, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I think it's interesting that Paul says, if you want to complete my joy, church, church who loves me, who sent Epaphroditus and who sent a gift, if you want to love me, then have the mind of Jesus. Because you are united to Jesus. And you are united to each other. Well, how do we have this? Again, look at verse 6. Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is the foil to Adam. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve said, we want to be like God. We want to know good from evil. And they fell in their pride. And yet here comes the king of creation, the one who spoke all things into being. And he says, I won't take my rights and my glory. I will deny them and die a shameful death on the cross. Friends, we have so just taken the, the horror of the cross out of our understanding. We wear it as jewelry. We put it on buildings. And there's not anything wrong with that. But I want you to understand... How would you feel if I just let off a string of obscenities right now? You'd be like, no, no way, don't do that. That's, and you'd like worry, Dan, you okay? 
when we say the word cross, it was an obscenity to the Roman culture. In fact, I heard that when they would make the pronouncements for crucifixion, they wouldn't even use that word because it was so horrific, so obscene, so shameful. And here we have Jesus taking this shameful, horrific, obscene death, the creator of the world. I mean, death is a result of our sin. And God who knew no sin, Jesus who never sinned, always did God's will, was brutally, shamefully hung on the cross. Voluntarily. See, here's the thing. Jesus chose humility. His life choices were to serve, to deny himself, to put others before himself. That is the humiliation of Jesus, who took the very nature of a servant, a slave is what it says. The old King James Version who said, who had no reputation of himself, but he humbled himself. So how is it possible for unity with people with divided minds, difference of opinions, it is to think like Jesus, to see the heart of Jesus. See, that's one of the things that's beautiful about this passage. We read the Gospels and we hear about Jesus. We read this verse and we see the very heart of Jesus. He said, I choose to love you in humility. The choice to put others first. Therefore God highly exalted him. Gave him the name above every name. That one day people everywhere, heaven and earth under the earth, will bow to Jesus. Does your knee bow to Jesus? Is he truly the most supreme, authoritative, uniting, life-orienting principle in your life? Have you been willing to say, not my will, but your will be done? Man, friends, that is so challenging, particularly in a selfie world right now that says, look at me, look at me, like me, love me, recognize me. And what we as Christians should be saying, don't look at me, look to Jesus. Look at the resurrected Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus, the King of kings, the one who died for you. We as a church are to be loud proclaimers of Jesus in our words and our deeds. The world should know that we are Christians by our love and to live a life of humility is not a call to misery and deprivation. It's really a call to the real satisfying life that God made for us. As as Ross said, that's moving with the, the grain of creation. When we live for ourselves, when we live for our own platforms and recognition and wealth and riches, that's when we get the splinters of this universe. What are you living for? For whom are you living? What does it look like for you? See, Jesus has the name above all names. Meaning he is the supreme authority. He began life in glory and he is in glory now and he will come again. We see God's heart for Jesus, his son, that he would point to him and give him glory. See, this isn't a passage of universal salvation saying everyone will bow the knee and worship Jesus as Savior. It is a passage that everyone will bow the knee and worship Jesus as Lord. Some with great joy, others will face in judgment. 
So do you see, church, our mission is to make Jesus known. And we stop standing shoulder to shoulder against the opposition. Begin to fight with one another. We get off of our mission. And we lose the purpose for which the church was created. For which she is made to stand. So do you think like Jesus? Do you put others first? Do you allow the story of cosmic redemption to be the narrative of your life? Or is it about your plan for cosmic conquering? Let me share a few tips from some saints who have lived before us on how they would develop humility. Again, these are kind of quaint sayings, aphorisms. You can probably argue with some of them. I would just argue, I would just say this. Those that kind of bend you the most, kind of prick you the most, instead of arguing against them, ask yourself, why does that annoy you? Because it might be the very one that you need to apply to yourself to grow in humility. Speak as little as possible about yourself. Keep busy with your own affairs and not those of others. Accept small irritations with good humor. Do not dwell on the faults of others. Accept insults and injuries. Accept contempt, being forgotten and disregarded. Be courteous and delicate even when provoked by someone. Another saint says this, Do God's will, not your own. Seek God first. Surrender to his will. Listen to this one. Develop patience with the difficulties of others. He says life is community is full of aggravations. It's a sign of growth when we give others the chance to figure out those weaknesses in their own way, in their own time, without trying to fix them. I've heard it put this way. Don't try to be the fourth person of the Trinity. Have radical honesty about your own weaknesses. Don't manage your reputation. And grow in awareness like Paul that you too are the chief of sinners. Friends, Jesus beautifully exemplified this attitude that night in the upper room when he took on the very nature of a servant and wrapped a towel around his waist. And he got down on his knees and he began to wash the grime from between his disciples' feet. He was giving them a picture of what he would do through his death on the cross, that he would wash away the filth of their sin. And then when he stood up, the disciples said, clearly you are the Lord. You do have the name above all names. Friends, Jesus rescued us that we might have his mind, that we might as citizens of heaven stand together like a grove of redwoods protecting one another and the gospel as we live for Jesus. Stand firm. And you can only do that through unity. And you can only be united, not uniform, united through humility. And you only find true humility if you think like Jesus. And you can only think like Jesus when you're united to Jesus by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Help us to adopt the mind of Christ who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Lord, help us to die to our own selfish ambitions and desires 
Help us to be long-suffering with others. To be quick to admit our own sin and need for a Savior. Lord, I pray for our church and the church in our nation and the church around the world. May we think like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, because we are united to Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.